You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Controlling all of the outcomes. It's here in this place when we have nowhere else to turn that we look to Jesus. See, he's the one who sees us when we fall, the one who hears us when we cry out, the one who cares about our pain. It's moments like these where we need to draw closer to God than ever before. It is this place where we find ourselves where we are desperate, desperate to see God do something incredible, do something amazing. So for that, we ask, we seek, and we knock. Well, good morning. It's an honor to be here. Ron and Annette are friends in ministry, and so glad to be back to be with you guys. I got an explosion of welcome from that door when I came in, and I had slipped back to my car and came in that door. Had an explosion of welcome in your church, more than I normally get in any church, so I don't know what it is, but thank you for that, too. It really made me feel welcome and at home right away. You saw a picture of a guy up there that was about uh, 40 years younger than, 45 years younger than I am right now. And I did, I did have a natural curly hair thing going on. That wasn't a, a, a perm. I was born in Canada, so I played a lot of hockey. And the picture to your right that you saw there was a hockey picture. I used to be a goalie. I grew up in Canada. We moved to the States in 1983 to Oregon and have been here ever since. Um, but uh, we traveled back to Canada quite often to visit family and friends. I head to Vancouver, head to Calgary, head to Saskatoon where I was born and places like that. One time when we were coming back across the border, I was with a couple of friends and uh, as we came through the border crossing at the Peace Arch there coming in from Vancouver, Canada into the United States, the uh, border official, uh, immigration official, uh, was standing by our window and looked at us and after asking a couple of questions, he says, do you have anything radioactive in your vehicle? Now, that's not a good question to be asked at the border crossing. And honestly, we looked at each other and just said, whoa, I've never been asked that question before. And he says, seriously, do you guys have anything radioactive in your vehicle? Because he had it on his belt. He says, because my radioactive detector is vibrating right now. And, and we're just kind of going, what is going on? And we sat there a little bit concerned, and then finally he asked the question, has anyone here had any kind of a medical thing done recently that uh, you're aware of, some kind of screening or something like that? And I realized that I'd had a brain imaging thing done, and they had injected me, and he said, you've been injected with radioactive isotopes, and I'm picking that up from your body right now. They sent me inside to a, a, a small room where you sort of feel like, I hope I'll get out of here before we're done. And uh, she held up a thing like a scan gun from a grocery store. That's what it looked like. It wasn't. She held it up to my head and she says, yeah, you're radioactive. And uh, had me sign some papers and I got back in my car and we drove home. This morning I want to talk to you about shame. My shame detector, if, if I had one and it was, re- if it was active and I could walk down the aisles and hold it up to you, 
I would go, you're radioactive. You've got shame. You've got shame. You've got shame. You've got shame. I would go to anyone and everyone here and say, yeah, my radioactive detector for shame is going off. Thirteen years ago, a friend of mine, Joel, who was uh, training to be a, a, a counselor, a therapist, and was uh, at midlife already as he was moving into this career change, uh, heard me sharing as we shared the depth of our own lives and the challenges that we were facing. And Joel looked at me and he said, as I'm in my 50s now, he looked at me and he said, I'm not anymore. He said, that sounds like shame. And honestly, friends, I didn't know what he was saying to me. I'd never heard that said to me before. What he heard me, when he heard me talk, he said, that sounds like shame. And I began my journey, what, about 13 to 15 years ago. As Joel made that comment, I was totally off guard. But today, I see shame all the time in my life. I experienced shame coming to this church feeling like I might not be good enough to preach today, that maybe this isn't good enough. And that's the definition of shame. It's always the feeling of, I'm not good enough. It's the not good enough stuff that rotates in your brain that throws off your shame detector if you're watching for it. The definition of shame is, I'm not enough. And if you start to watch for it, you will see it in all of your life. Now, shame has two sides. Two sides. It's something I've done that I shouldn't have done or something I should have done that I didn't do. And it goes in both directions. I shouldn't have done that. I should have done this, but I didn't. And we go back and forth. It has two sides to it what I should have done and what I shouldn't have done, and when I cross the line in each direction. It also has two directions. Shame in relationship to God and shame in relationship horizontally to other people. And we carry shame in both directions. And it destroys our interior journey with people when shame enters, relationships are poisoned. Relationships are impacted by shame, whether it be your relationship with God or your relationship with another person. We all carry a sense of I'm not enough so much of the time, but the problem is we need to become aware of it, and that's where I want to start today. In a very significant book that was written back in the 1980s by a man named John Bradshaw, so just to start with my title, No More Shame on You, have you heard a parent, or maybe you have done this, said to a child when they look at them, shame on you. Shame on you. Those are very, very powerful words. And when we start to hear them in our life, and we start to sense that maybe God is saying them, shame on you. Relationships are broken. And we are affected, and our DNA takes a wrong direction. This became the experience of John Bradshaw in his book, groundbreaking book that he wrote in the 80s called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And he wrote, 10 years ago, I had one of those life-jolting discoveries that significantly changed everything. I named the core demon in my life. 
I named shame. This means that I became aware of the massive destructive power that shame exerted on my life. I discovered that I had been bound by shame all my life. It ruled me like an addiction. I lugged around inside of me a dead weight of not good enoughness. Today's leading voice on shame is Brene Brown. Maybe you've read or heard her or watched her on her TED Talks. She's written some groundbreaking books on shame, and her definition of shame is not good enough. You're not good enoughness. But the result of Brene's work, and she calls herself a shame researcher, the result of her work in the last 10 years has been a tidal wave of interest in shame. For people who are, who are pondering those things and wrestling with those things, for pastors and leaders, and maybe it's spilled out into you as you've heard about Brene. Her numerous books are excellent. I encourage you to read them all, but I want you to know something about Brene's wonderful work. It has no theological foundation underneath it. And that's what I want to do for you this morning. I want to put a theological foundation underneath shame because we have a problem in the church as well. Pastors have a blind spot. In a word, that blind spot is shame. We don't learn about shame in seminary. We don't find it in our theological reading. We don't recognize it on the pages of Scripture. We don't see it in our people. We need to begin to come to grips with the fact that we've not been trained to monitor, watch, or become aware of shame. So I want us to study shame in the Bible You'll be surprised if you read through your Bible with this as the overriding perspective or lens. I'm looking for shame. You will see it from the beginning to the end of the Bible. In lives, in groups, in people, in families, in systems, in families of origin, you will see shame running everywhere in the Bible. And then if you start to watch your life and notice your relationships, you will be surprised where you'll find shame lurking up all over the place, destroying your relationship with God and with others. Brene Brown has said, the less we understand shame and how it affects our feelings... Thoughts and behaviors, the more power it exerts in our lives. The less we understand it or are aware of it, the more power it exerts in our lives. For 50 years, I did not know the power of shame in my life until Joel looked at me and says, that sounds like shame. And I said, what is that about? I've never thought of myself as a shame-based person. So let's go to the definition of shame just to have it really clear in our life. Shame is the inner voice that says you are not enough. You are not enough. And you need to watch for the inner voice that says, I'm afraid of not being or doing enough. There are two critical areas where shame shows up. The shame of not being enough for God and the shame of not being enough for others. Let's talk about both of those. First of all, the shame of not being enough, of not being or doing enough for God. Have you ever been asked this question? How are you doing spiritually? Have you been asked that question? What does that question do to you? 
Well, I'll ask you this morning. How are you doing spiritually? I brought the index to my spiritual disciplines book. And I just want to check up with you. How's your Sabbath thing going in your life? And are you journaling? Are you practicing simplicity? Is there solitude and silence in your life on a regular basis? Do you practice hospitality? How about your Christian service? Are you witnessing and sharing your faith with other people? Do you study your Bible? How's your devotional reading? Have you memorized any scripture lately? Are you taking care of the, cult, the creation, care of earth? Are you showing compassion on people? Are you working towards justice in your community? Have you been fasting lately? How's your intercessory prayer life going? Any shame? I just need to ask one question on, the, on spiritual disciplines. How's your prayer life? And most people will say, oh, wow. I'll have to pretend something or experience shame. But either way, I either own it or I hide it. But my prayer life is not enough. I've never met anyone who told me their prayer life is, not an, is enough. That they've got it down. Shame is that experience of being asked How are you doing spiritually and realizing I'm not enough? I'm not enough. And do you know that all the spiritual practices that I referred to, and by the way, in that book, there were about 30 more that I didn't pick up on. All the spiritual practices were not given to you to perform to please God so that you could deal with the shame in your life and park it down somewhere. Have a better prayer life. Be involved in fasting and tithing and serving. That's not how we deal with shame, by being better at the spiritual practices. But that's the way many of us grew up in the church. I push shame down by doing better for God. When I feel better about myself, God must feel better about me. Listen to me. That is a lie. That is an equation from the pit of hell. Hear me on this. When I feel better about myself, God will feel better about me too. I had my quiet time today. I feel better about myself. God feels better about me too. If you live with that equation in your life, that God feels about me the way I feel about myself, that when I feel shame or not enough because I haven't had a quiet time for a month or a year because I don't whatever you want to put in the blank with God, If you say, I feel that about myself, God must feel that about me too. You have passed on to God. You have projected on to God something that's not happening in his heart, mind, and soul. How God thinks and feels about you is not how you think and feel about yourself. It's not the same. It doesn't transfer to God. There's a huge gap, and there always will be between who I am and who I should be. I know that. If shame is the issue that enters your life that drives the gap to try to shrink it between who you are and who you should be, if shame is the motivation to get you to close that gap, I just want you to know something. You will be a shame-based person all your life. It'll cause you to turn the spotlight on your spiritual performance And you will look at your spiritual practices and your way of life before God and your being and doing in the presence of God and realize I'm not enough and the internal voice of disgrace will sweep over you. And it will distance you in your relationship with God. 
Shame always causes us to turn away. But what about the shame of not being enough, not just for God, but the shame of not being enough for other people? Have you ever felt like, I'm not loving enough? I'm not loving enough towards people. I'm not loving enough towards my family, my parents. I haven't visited them enough or taken care of them enough or I don't honor them enough or I'm not obedient as a child. Shame enters there, shame in a marriage. I just talked to the men here in this room. Guys, how much shame do you feel about not being enough as a husband? I just want you to know that's not going to help you deal with your shame. Walking around with shame doesn't help you get out of shame. How am I doing with neighbors, loving neighbors, loving coworkers, serving and caring for people? I'm not enough for others because my abilities aren't enough. I'm not good enough. At, I'm not succeeding. I'm not competent. Some of you go to work every day with a feeling of I'm not enough for my career. I'm not enough for this person. Some of you have an employer or a person around you of power who makes you feel like you're not enough. It's a dangerous experience to be in a relationship where you sense you're not enough all the time at school, at home, the way parents might make you feel or the way an employer might make you feel or the way an educator, a teacher at school might make you feel. We exert shame to control people and people exert shame on us to get us to be different and so we become shame-based people in our relationship with other people some of you have a behavioral issue you have an addiction it might be a, uh, or a anger or it might be depression it might be something to do with alcohol or drugs or another type of addictive or uh, compulsive behavior and you're experiencing great shame around that behavior shame is not going to help you get out of it shame is going to strap you to it There's a quote from Lewis Smedes who's entered this area a lot and studying it. Shame people translate criticism of what they do into judgment of who they are. They take it on as their identity. There are many of us here today who have a shame identity. The feeling of shame is about our very selves, not about some bad thing we did or said, but about who we are. It tells us that we are unworthy. Now you need to know something. The very starting point for the shame game is Satan himself, our number one enemy. And now I want to move to the theological foundation for in the scriptures it says that Satan is in the shame game because his name is also called the accuser, the accuser of the brothers and sisters in the family of God that one of his number one strategies is to infect you with shame. And he's going to destroy you and your relationship with God and others by doing that. That's his primary strategy. So let's set a theological foundation for shame this morning. I said I would do that. It starts right at the beginning of the Bible where we read Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now, that's an odd thing to say, felt no shame. Really, if I'm writing the Bible, I would have written it this way. Adam and I, wife were naked and happy. Adam and Eve 
were naked and confident. Adam and Eve were naked and in love. Adam and Eve were naked and having a good time. All I know is that it should have been written that way, it would seem to me, except it was written this way. Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. Is there a clue going on here early in the scriptures about something to do with relationships with God and with each other around the issue of shame? I think we've got the clue already in Genesis chapter 2. Then in Genesis chapter 3, the whole scenario takes off. It's not just their scenario, it's our scenario. It's my scenario. It's your scenario. Then the eyes of both of them were opened after they had sinned, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And now watch what happens. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then it says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was ashamed. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In all relationships with God first and with others, we immediately move into some defense strategy to push down the desperate feelings of shame. You will start to perform for God, hide from God, or do something in your relationship with God to deal with the feeling of being face-to-face with him right now feels uncomfortable. I need to do something to prepare for that or be ready for that or somehow make him feel better about me or else I need to go hide. And some of you today, I want you to know this, some of you are hiding from a God who loves you and is seeking you and wants to walk with you, but you are hiding from him and you don't even know it because it's shame that causes you to hide because you're regularly saying to yourself, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And because I feel that way about myself, I'm sure you feel that way too, God. And that's what Adam was doing. He is saying, I'm sure I know how you're going to feel about me when you see me. Because I did what I wasn't supposed to do. And I missed what I was supposed to do. And having gone wrong in both directions, I'm pretty sure you found out. And when you see me, you're going to know it. So I don't want to see you. Shame is the first negative emotion in the Bible. And do you notice from this script of the opening scenario of shame, it's less a description of guilt and more a description of shame? It's less a description of a singular thing that you did wrong that has to be forgiven and more of the total breaking of a meaningful relationship because of an emotion, a change of the very character and nature of the relationship between the man and woman and God and between the man and woman themselves. The dynamics have been twisted emotionally around the very central crux of shame entering the equation. Of course they had sinned. Of course they were morally wrong. But the damage is around the emotion that breaks the relationship with God. 
someone has said this, shame is not simply an unfortunate, random, emotional event. Some of us, when we feel shame, we just go, man, I feel shame. It's just unfortunate. It's random. No, it's not. It's both, it is both a source and the result of evil's active assault of God's creation. That's what shame is. Shame is the work of the enemy on God's creation. The quote goes on. In other words, Genesis 2.25, which we just read, is not just a passing description of humankind before Genesis 3. It is drawing our attention to the emotional fulcrum around which the history of sin rotates, the fundamental source, harbinger, and herald of what is to come, which is, as such, in the biblical narrative, when we experience shame, we are not simply encountering one of an array of possible emotions. Rather, we are engaging in evil in its most fundamental mode of operation. Shame is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationship with God and each other. I'll say it again, because you're experiencing it and so am I. Shame is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and each other. Kurt Thompson from his book, The Soul of Shame. Now, shame has been called the master emotion. It is internalized and off of it, all other kinds of emotions begin to rebound off off of it. If I find a person who's angry, I can often find their shame underneath, and their anger is triggered by something shameful that they're angry about. If I find somebody that's fearful, I can usually trace that back to shame. Or hate, I can trace it to shame. Or rejection, a feeling of rejection, I can trace that to shame. Disappointment, I can trace it to shame. Frustration often goes back to shame. So much of our emotional life is driven by a foundational emotion of the fall, shame. Bradshaw, whom I quoted earlier on, said this, any human emotion can become internalized. When internalized, an emotion stops functioning as an emotion and becomes an identity. Toxic shame is no longer an emotion that signals our limits. It is a state of being, a core identity. Some of us don't realize that shame has become our core identity. For many of us, it's linked to our spirituality in every way. For others of us, it's linked to our home, the way we function even here at church, how we do, who we are, and we need grace for guilt. But friends, we need grace for shame. We can deal with our guilt. We will deal with our guilt today as we do but today, Ron is, Pastor Ron has set something up that says, you need to not just deal with your guilt. You need to also have grace for your shame. Let's move to the Christological answer, the answer from Jesus regarding shame, how he dealt with it. Pastor Jesus places three attacks on shame. The incarnation, the fact that he's a friend of sinners, and the crucified one. I want to walk through those three to wrap it up this morning. First of all, here comes Pastor Jesus. Number one, the incarnation. The fact that God became a man, incarnate, in flesh, incarnate, flesh. 
Jesus becomes a man. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So he gave up his God prerogatives and functioned in full form as a human being, just like you and me. This is to call the kenosis, this business of giving up his, taking, becoming nothing and yielding his God capacity to function as God on planet Earth and functioning as a human being. It's called the kenosis, the self-emptying. So the self-emptying starts when God becomes a fetus. One, two, four cells starting to grow. In a stable, learning to eat. I'm watching my grandchildren learn to eat. It's a messy experience. But to watch God learn to eat, to scrape it off, to be all muddy, messy, and dirty with the food spilling down, have to be wiped up. The second person of the Trinity gets tired. He has to go to the bathroom. He's tempted. He throws up. He gets sick. He was in every way functioning like we were. And if ever there was access to trying to shame him, it was at the point of his humanity. And that's why the enemy walks Jesus into the desert at the very beginning of his ministry, he catches Jesus on his humanity and he says, I'm going to shame you. And he does it in three ways. First of all, when he walks him into the desert, he says, you're hungry, aren't you? Well, you're God. Take care of your hunger. Turn these stones to bread. And Jesus says, no, I have self-emptied myself, but Satan is shaming him. You're not using your privileges. Then he says, take care of your authority and all these kingdoms will bow down to you because that's who you really are, right, God? So just do it. And he's shaming him. Come on, do it. And then he says, take care of your respect and jump off this temple and the angels will gather you up in their hands before you hit the bottom and everyone will realize who you really are. Shame on you, Jesus, for not being who you really are. Shame on you. And Jesus says, I'm incarnate. I'm a human being. And I have let go of my God prerogatives so I can do it the way you do it. The way you're going to do it is the way I do it. So that you can do it the way I do it. I'm not functioning like God. I'm functioning like a human being who is God. But I'm fully human. And all of this desert shame was preceded by this statement by God when Jesus was baptized. You are my beloved son. Put that in there and don't let anyone shame you, Jesus. Here comes Pastor Jesus, his second way of dealing with shame. He was, or exemplifying shame and dealing with it. He was a friend of sinners. We miss this today. So I want to take us back. It says in Luke 7, 34, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He hangs out with the scum, what the Pharisees considered the scum of the society. He hangs out with those people. 
Even those of us who are seen in the wrong place with people at the wrong time, people start to wonder about us. If you're rescuing a friend who's struggling with alcoholism and go into a bar and be entering kind of a seedy bar to bring them out and befriend them, people who see you, if they know you, might just say, why is Morris going in there to be the friend of a sinner? What if I went into a porn place because I knew someone here who was my friend had gone in there to sit for three hours and infect their life with pornography and I went in and walked in there because it was the only way I could rescue my friend to get him out of there. And someone would look at me and say, I saw Pastor Morris walking into that porn place. I think that's what's happening to Jesus. He's always doing the right thing, but it's perceived wrong. And the most striking thing about it, Robin Stock, it says, the most striking thing about the earthly ministry of Jesus is that he frequently chose to enter places of shame and associate with shamed people. Jesus came to find shamed people. He came to set captives free. And that means he came to find shamed people and set them free. Zacchaeus is the perfect example of this. He's the head tax collector. He's Jewish and he is scum. He's hated by the Jewish people and he's used by the Roman people and everyone thinks of him as this inappropriate little guy that's climbed a tree to find Jesus. And when Jesus sees him, he says, Zacchaeus, come on down out of that tree. I'm coming to your place today and the crowd is walking with Jesus as they make their way along and what does the crowd that's following Jesus say when he looks at Zacchaeus and says, I'm coming to your place today. It says, all the people saw this and began to mutter. They said, he's going, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. So the whole crowd that's walking with him exits. And as they exit, they mutter and they say, he'd rather be with Zacchaeus than with us. He's gone to be the friend of a sinner. And he's gone to set Zacchaeus free from his shame. What other story shall I tell you? The woman caught in adultery is covered with shame. Why are there so many women in the Bible that Jesus has to minister to? Because women are more shamed in our culture in many ways. And he has to step into a shame-based culture that did a lot of shaming of the female gender, for it was an incredibly chauvinistic society, as many have been. And Jesus steps across that line regularly with women and says, you're living in a shame-based culture. Let me help you. The prostitute at Simon the Pharisee's party, there it is. She comes in and says, I don't want to have this lifestyle anymore, and I've got all kinds of shame, but I think you're going to set me free. And Jesus stands up for for her against Simon the Pharisee who's hosting the party and says, Simon, you don't understand what's going on here. She is being set free from her shame. What about the untouchables? What about touching lepers? What about the woman with the issue of bleeding whom he wasn't supposed to touch, but she'd already touched him? And he says, woman, your faith has made you well. Good for you. Jesus violates boundaries all over the place. What about Peter on the beach after he denied Jesus? I would have put my denomination, would have put me on a two-year probation from ministry for doing what Peter did to Jesus. 
denying the Son of God when he was dying on the cross. That's a two-year probation for. You need to mature a little bit more before you can get back into the ministry. You've got to grow up spiritually, Peter and Morris. And Jesus looks at Peter on the beach and says, why are you back here fishing? I know why you're here, Peter. You're ashamed. You know you can't do it with me anymore because you don't think you have it. You tried and said you wouldn't fail me in any way, but you did. So now, all you're carrying around is a pile, a boatload of shame. And I'm here to undo it. Follow me. Feed my sheep. Three denials, three times. Follow me. Do you love me? Follow me. Do you love me? Follow me. Do you love me? Come on, Peter. Follow me. Re-engage. I haven't left you. You left me. Shame separated us. But I don't want that. Friends, you're struggling with shame and it's cutting your relationship off with God. Can you see it this morning? Can you feel it a little bit? Can you start to see the edges, how shame damages your relationship with God? And finally, the crucified one. The shame of the cross is beyond our imagination. Here's what the Romans do. Shame was, the, was central to the crucifixion itself. Romans opted for crucifixion for its public humiliating quality. The cross is the ultimate tale of a person being labeled as an outcast. Jesus endured actual concrete shame. This fulfilled Isaiah's vision of God's servant who would bear tremendous shame. Do you know that Jesus didn't hang on the cross with a loincloth around his private parts? Do we all know that Jesus hung on the cross naked? John 19 says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, and when they got down to the last piece of his clothing, which was not torn or sewn, it was one piece of cloth wrapped around the last piece of cloth, his loincloth. They gambled for it, and then he was naked. Jesus is as low as any shamed person could ever have been. And at that low place, Christ goes to the deepest place of shame so that the most abused person could know him as a real friend. Christ goes to the deepest place of shame so that the most abused person here this morning can trust him and know him as a real friend. He gets it. So what should we do? Let's join Jesus in undoing the shame game. First of all, scorn your shame. Step one. For the joy set before him in Hebrews, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. As Jesus hung on the cross, if Adam was in the garden saying, I'm naked and ashamed, right? That's what happened. They realized they were naked and ashamed. Jesus is hanging on the cross and saying this, I am naked and unashamed. You can try to shame me 
at the deepest possible level, but I will scorn the shame on the cross that has wrecked humanity. I am naked and unashamed because I am God's beloved son and I stand in that relationship now. You cannot shame me, Satan. The point here is to emphasize that Jesus' literal naked vulnerability is a testimony to us that he knows exactly what it is like to be us, to truly be with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, not only knows what it means to be vulnerable, he knows how painfully, frighteningly hard it is to live into it given shame's threat. And so it says, here he is. From Isaiah, the prophecy, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. Second, First, name your shame, scorn it. Second, the need for vulnerability and courage. Since it was a personal relationship that set up our toxic shame, we need personal relationships to heal our shame. You need to find people in your life who will meet you and be so open and honest with you that when you share your shame, they will provide the healing, comforting words of grace, eye to eye, and say to you, no more shame on you. No more shame on you. Because God never shames anyone. Would you bow your heads with me? Pastor Ron is going to lead us. And I just would say to you, if you haven't tracked or defined or found any shame in your life this morning, any angles or edges of where it's at work in relationships or where it's at work in your relationship with God, would you please land one or more? Land your desperation of shame. And when you come forward, allow this experience, this tangible experience of Christ on the cross to minister to and heal your shame. Holy Spirit, enter this room. Help us find our shame and then help us hold it up to you and let the person of Jesus Christ scorn it with us and take it away by the blood and the body of Jesus' very shamed place on the cross. Amen. Morris, that's a powerful word that God has given you to give to us. You know, hearing that sometimes in what we heard today is shame becomes such a part of our own identity. And what we want to know today when we come to the Lord's table is something greater than that. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. 
You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.